read, the more I comprehend and think about the Lord. It's great. Um, um, can I come down here? I, mean, I just don't know why. I just always feel so far away up there. Okay, Isaiah, again, you, you know, to understand Isaiah 9, what must you understand? Isaiah 8, right? And to understand Isaiah 8, what must you understand? Isaiah 7, right? 7, 8, and 9, I, well, actually a little bit longer than that, but 7, 8, and 9 I call the book of Emmanuel because all three chapters deal with children. Beautiful little children. Isaiah 7 is the prophecy of a virgin conceiving and bringing forth a son whose name will be Emmanuel. A virgin conceiving. Isaiah 7, 14. Can I share with you the cool concept of Isaiah 8 when you take time to read it? Well, let's pray. Father, as we just go to the Word, wow, we thank you for giving us truth, your Word. Every word, every phrase should just have such meaning and impact. Even though these things were written to Israel, we can learn and benefit so much from it. Father, we want to be men and women, boys and girls, who are trusting Jesus. In the storms of life, in the difficulties of life, we need to be trusting you and recognizing that you are God and we are not. And, and we need to accept that and we need to submit and, and live contentedly with you. Uh, thank you, Father, for teaching us day after day after day and being so patient with us. And thank you for the privilege it is to be able to someday rule even over the angelic realm because of Christ. And so we're thankful, Father, again, for the truth of the Word of God. And we pray that you will continue to build up and strengthen our church and each of our families. In Jesus' name, amen. So you want to know what Isaiah 8 is about? Just It's easy. Two rivers. Two rivers. So I'm going to tell you about it, and then I'm going to talk to, talk, we'll look at the text. But very quickly, here's what it is. There is a river called Shiloh, and it, 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 when we go to Israel, you will see us actually walk through it, drink it, whatever. You know, we'll walk through the whole tunnel. But the river Shiloh is in the old city of David, and it, it basically comes, it's an underground spring, and it, it comes and it goes underneath Jerusalem. Hezekiah built a tunnel, 1,777 feet long, Two groups of men on opposite sides of the city of David. city of David is like a peninsula sticking out, jutting over three valleys. The two groups of men dug and did 90-degree corners and everything, and they met in the very middle. And they allowed the Shiloh River to flow under the city of David so that during a siege, they would have fresh water. It was brilliant of Hezekiah. But it's called the, the Shiloh River, and it is God's river. It is his river going underneath his capital, his home, his place. You all agree? So the challenge that Isaiah gave everybody was this. He said, will you trust in the gentle flowing Shiloh River? Meaning, will you trust in the Lord Jesus? Will you trust in the God who created you and forms you? Or the other river in Isaiah 8 is the river Euphrates. Wild river up north in Iraq, in Babylon. And it represented the wildness of unsaved kings and empires that will destroy God and destroy God's people. So who will you trust? The gentle flowing river of Shiloh and trust the Lord? Or will you go to Assyria and trust the wicked wild Euphrates? What a challenge. So you know what? Who do they trust in? The Euphrates. They make the wrong choice. They trust in the... So God said, because you trusted the wrong river... Okay, had you trusted the Shiloh River, it would be sweet to your health, and it will build you up and refresh you. But since you trusted in the wicked Euphrates River, meaning the wicked empires, the, the river is going to overflood its banks. It's going to crash over, just like one of those gigantic tidal waves. It's going to crash over your land up until your head. 
Now, if it went over the head, what would that mean? You're dead. But if it only goes up to your neck, it means you're basically destroyed, but you still have a little life left in you. God says, I'm going to destroy your land because of your unbelief, but I'm going to leave just a little remnant of believers still trusting me. That was the judgment. Okay, that's Isaiah 8. As a result of trusting the Euphrates versus Shiloh, they, listen, you know what they did? They plunged the whole country into darkness. Like our country, founded on some Judeo-Christian principles, as we've rejected those, our country is plunging itself into dark, spiritual darkness. So this is how it ends. We don't have time. Read it on your own. Isaiah 8, just to show you that what I'm saying, verse 6. Isaiah 8, verse 6, quickly. Inasmuch as these people refused, they refused the waters of Shiloh, that flow softly. The word Shiloh means sent one. They rejected the sent one of the waters of Shiloh, that flow softly. But rather they rejoiced in Rezin and Ramalia, uh, the king of Assyria, the waters. Look at the verse 7. Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, the river, that's Euphrates, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria. Verse 8, he will pass through Judah like a water. He will overflow and pass over and will reach up to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. That's why we call Israel Emmanuel's land. Um, but basically, the end verse. Look at verse 22. Then they will look to the earth. The people that reject God, they will look to the earth. They will only see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into total darkness. All right, that's the result of rejecting God, right? Total darkness. So this is where the good news of Isaiah 9 comes in. So I got to do this. I need to do this very quickly. But Isaiah 9 is just good news upon good news. And here it is. God says, yes, you're plunged into total darkness and you were flooded up to your neck, but you're going to get rescued. But the rescue is going to be by a baby. A baby will rescue you out of your despair. Awesome. All right. Well, what baby is it? Jesus. Yeah. See every answer. Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, even though everybody is plunged into spiritual darkness, nevertheless, the bloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And afterward, more heavily oppressed her. Okay, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. Okay, let me see if I can make sense of this. Nevertheless, verse 1, the gloom, the despair and anguish of rejecting God will not be upon her permanently who is distressed. Even though the country rejected the Lord, all is not lost. There is a little remnant, a little spark of believers who trust in him still, and that will fan into a giant flame someday. So even though we're a small church, a very small church on a small corner in a small part of the world, we as a little church can have a huge impact as the fire of the gospel spreads from us. So same thing for Israel, for this land that, that he's speaking about. It says this, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. All right, Zebulun and Naphtali is up north in Israel. And God lightly esteemed them. Literally in the Hebrew, he lightly humbled them. He caused the enemy to cross the border and, and literally destroy them except leave a few alive. God calls that lightly esteeming them. Just like a little spanking. Incredible, isn't it? They needed some discipline and they got it. But listen to this next part. Um, it's the land of Zebulun. Don't forget those words. Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, two tribes of Israel. But then it says, and afterward, more heavily oppressed her. That word in the Hebrew, oppressed her, it's the word kavod. It means glory. It means heavy weight. Like, remember I told you this morning, the glory of God is a heavy weight. It could be a heavy burden, like a stone on your back, or it could be 
the heavy weight of glory. I think the, I think the English translators got this wrong. I think instead of translating it, afterward, Zebulun and Naphtali was more heavily oppressed or more heavily burdened. I don't think that's right. I think the proper meaning is the land of Zebulun and Naphtali was more greatly honored. Right? Totally different concept, but same word. Here's why. Who lived in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali? Well, I'll tell you, Zebulun and Naphtali, according to Matthew 4, they, the, two, the two districts meet up in a city called Capernaum. Who lived in Capernaum? Jesus. 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 So the very region that God spanked and disciplined because of the rejection of the Messiah is the place he's going to give great honor to because the Messiah is going to live there. He's going to show up there in Capernaum. So that's what Matthew 4 says. Jesus moved to Capernaum as an adult to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 9. Do you guys think it's pretty honorable if Jesus chose your, your neighborhood to live in? Oh, it'd be the most awesome thing to know my next-door neighbor is God in human flesh. That'd be like the greatest honor we could have in our neighborhood, right? So this is, this is what he's saying. He's saying the people that got hurt because of rejecting Jesus, is, they're going to be greatly honored because Jesus is going to choose to live there. Yeah. That's what mine says. Oh, what does yours say? Are you in verse 1? Um, yes. Yeah. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea. Oh, yeah. To See? The land east, east of the Jordan and the Galilee. That English translation has honor, which I think is the better, better um, position than greatly oppressed. Good. And it's by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles. Of course, we know that's where Jesus was, uh, lived as an adult. The people who walked in darkness, remember they were in spiritual darkness? It says, now they have seen a great light. Why? Because Jesus is a 30-year-old adult living in the city. Okay, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, okay, upon them a light has shined. You guys, if Canada Canada attacks our country by foot, who is going to get hurt first? Us or the people down in Houston, Texas? Us. Us, because they're going to have to cross us and kill us first before they get to Texas. So in the same way, in order before anybody in Israel got hurt by the enemy, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali would get the brunt of the force. So what God said is this at the end of verse 2, those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, they were the first to feel the, the weapons of the enemy. Upon them a light has shined. So Jesus basically is kind of making up for the fact... He's, He's living there to make up for the fact that they're the ones that got hurt first. Look at verse 3. He now talks about the second coming. You have multiplied the nation. Even though right now they're very small as believers, they're going to be large at the second coming. God increased its joy. Notice they're all past tense. It's a done deal. They rejoice before you, literally, with exceeding great joy, according to the joy of harvest. When you got a good harvest, you were exceedingly joyful. There's coming a day when Israel, as hard as they've been oppressed and picked on and made fun of all these years, they're going to be the jewel of God's kingdom. And everybody will honor them. It's going to be so much better for them in the future, basically. Does that make sense? See, just like great days are coming. Verse 4, For you, God, have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor. Those are all big words. They're like Exodus words. You know, how, how did God rescue Israel out of Egypt? out of the yoke and bondage of Pharaoh. He used Moses and a staff. 
Like, the staff is the most insignificant way to break a, a nation. What would break a nation? Tanks, cannons, military guns, maybe nuclear missiles. But God doesn't use any of those to get his people free. He uses a man who stutters and a staff of wood. Isn't it amazing that God gets a victory such, using such common, ordinary things? Okay, look at the next part. Verse 4, as in the day of Midian. Tell me anything. What do you know about the day of Midian? Real quick. What do you know about the day of Midian? Who was fighting the Midianites, and how did they win? Gideon, yes, Gideon. Yes, exactly. Gideon had to fight the Midianites. You guys, the Bible says that the camels of the Midianites were almost innumerable. You couldn't even put a number on them. There were so many. They were like the locusts of a plague. That's how mighty the Midianite, the Midianite army was. What did God tell Joshua? Or I'm sorry, Gideon. Narrow that army down to 300 men. Stand in a half circle. Hold a clay, a clay pitcher with a torch underneath it. And when I shout, break the pitcher of clay. And you will get the victory. How does God rescue people in the, uh, against the Midianites? A clay pitcher, which is probably worth $2.50, and a piece of wood with a fire on it. That's all it takes. Do you see, do you see what's going on in chapter 9? God is telling them over and over, yes, you've rejected and refused me, you've plunged yourself into darkness, and as a result, I had no choice but to punish you, but there's coming a day when you will see a great light, and you will trust in me, and I will deliver you through the most extraordinary, insignificant means. How is he going to do it? He's going to tell us now. Look at verse 5. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. All right, if warrior's sandals, we'll talk about the shoes shot at the preparation of the gospel of peace about the Roman army, soldier, um, the armor of God. So if all the warrior's sandals and all of their garments that were rolled in blood because the battle's over, if they're all burned as fuel for fire, what does it mean about war? Is war continuing or is war over? War is over. Because the sandals are, the sandals are gone, the sandals are gone and the garments are gone. They're all burned up. So literally, the battle's over, the fighting's done. How? How did you get rescued? Look at verse, uh, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. This is how the rescue comes. A child is going to be born. For unto us a son is given. Of course, if the child is born, it's 100% human. But God says, it's going to be my eternal son. And since he can't be born, he's always existed, I will give him to, the, to earth as a sacrifice. So do you see in that verse, both humanity and divinity. For unto us a child, Jesus, will be physically born, born of a woman, but God's eternal son, who always existed, is that person, and he will be given by God the Father. And the government will be upon his shoulder. You guys, it means he can easily carry the weight of the world. Uh, we don't have time. Well, let's go there. Uh, it says here the government will be upon his shoulder. And then we're going to talk about his four names quickly. Go to Zechariah chapter 4. See, I, I hope you guys are grasping all these things. I hope you, I, see, I find these things absolutely phenomenal. Fantastic. Zechariah 6, I'm sorry. Zechariah 6, verse 12. 
In the days of Zechariah, just a young boy, probably a, a late teen, he, um, here what he does, there's three captives that come from Babylon. They have, uh, they have silver and gold, verse 11. And Zechariah is supposed to make an elaborate crown and set it on the high priest. Now, you remember what I preached about that? Can a high priest ever be king? No, they cannot. They have to be two different tribes. What, priest do, what tribe do high priests come from? Levi, what tribe do, do uh, kings come from? Judah. And they can never mix. You can never have this, the same man be in both offices. It's impossible. But here, Zechariah has to set a king's crown on the priest's head. Here's why. Verse 12. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man, All right, whose name is the branch. Who stood up before Jesus and cried out, Behold the man? Quoted, quoted Zechariah 6. Um, John Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. Somebody else stood up and said, During a trial, at the end of a trial, Pontius Pilate, he had a whole crowd before him, and he brings Jesus and says, Behold the man. And everybody knew Pontius Pilate's quoting Zechariah 6. And Zechariah 6, who's the man? It's the king priest. See, everybody in the crowd would have said, Pilate's quoting Zechariah, saying this is our king priest. He's got a king's robe on. He was just beaten beyond measure, and his beard's been plucked out. Here it says, Behold the man whose name is the branch. From his place he shall branch out. And he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall, here it is. He shall bear the glory. He can carry the weight of the government. He can carry all the glory of God without faltering, without missing a step. Like if I carry a heavy load, like some of those round tables, man, as I'm coming up the stairs with the round table by myself, it's like it begins to slip out of my fingers, right? I can't bear the weight of the round table because of its shape and its awkwardness. But the Lord, he can handle the weight of the entire government without misstepping, without making a mistake. Nothing's ever going to go wrong. And everything he does is perfect. Why? Because he's the God-man. He shall bear in the glory. He shall sit and rule on his throne. So he shall be a priest on his throne. Listen, and the counsel of peace shall be between them both. He will never make a wrong decision, ever, as priest or, or king. That's basically what Isaiah is saying. So, okay, real quick. Who can Israel expect to rescue them and give them everlasting joy and bear the weight of the government on, on his shoulders and never make a mistake? This child that has been going to be born and the son that is going to be given, that's who it is. Okay? But now we get a description very quickly. Isaiah chapter 9, look at verse 6, the end of it. His na- we're given his name. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Very quickly. It, I, I, st- I think the counseling, the wonderful counselor is actually not as good of a translation as you could have. The tense of the Hebrew of wonderful is more like this. He is a counseling wonder. His counsel, his advice, Jesus' advice is perfect for every occasion. You got a problem? Go to the Word of God. Like, I love my students at the high school when I'm doing a Bible study. They're, they're always like, Mr. Weida, why do you always have to quote a verse? And I'm like, because whatever I tell you is worth nothing. But Jesus is the counseling wonder. Like, whatever he says is right. So I told them. So we were talking about dating and marriage a little bit. And I, and I said, you have to go by the Bible to, know, to understand marriage. 
If you don't understand what the Bible says about marriage and what Jesus says, then you have no counsel for a good marriage. I'm telling my high school students this. Um, He is a counseling wonder. Do you guys agree? Every word that Jesus spoke was right on for the situation. Like he, he never made a mistake, so we can trust him on that. Look at the next word, mighty God. In the Hebrew, El Gabor. El Gabor. He is, what, if you're a mighty God, is there anything you cannot do? No. You can do absolutely anything. You can destroy the world. You can build it up again. You can conquer all the rebel armies. You win. You're mighty God. So the baby is not only every word perfect, he also is almighty God who nothing is impossible for. That's pretty awesome to know that this baby is coming to be born. But for us, he was born. Look at the next phrase, everlasting father. Don't get confused about this. Jesus is not the father and the father is not the son. The idea of a father is one who gives love and protection and guidance. Jesus, all authority has been given to Jesus by the father. And for all the ages, he is going to be our loving, guiding shepherd. Right? He's, the, he's going to be our father figure for all eternity. It's pretty awesome that he not only has saved us and kept us, but he's going to be like a father to us. He will guide us, protect us, feed us. says it in Revelation 7, he's going to protect us from the sun and the rain. He's going to feed us so we're never hungry. He's going to give us uh, things to drink so we're never thirsty. He's a constant provider. And then the last one, he's the Prince of Peace. He's the one, he's the only one that will bring peace to uh, rebels. He's the only one. So this is what Isaiah said 700 years before. Do you think anybody would have confusion that the baby to be born to rescue Israel is going to be God? There's no doubt. This verse says he will be God. So, I, you know, there's people here that say Jesus is not God, not in our church, but I'm battling that all the time. No, Jesus isn't God. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, they, but even just general people, they don't understand. Jesus is God, but he's God in human flesh. Don't you love Christmas? It gives us a chance to think about hope. Ah, rescued by a baby. That's how God does things. Hey, he's going to take care of this church. You know that? God will always be taking care of his church. Always. We just need to trust him. Father, thank you for our time, both now in um, a little bit of singing and a little bit of uh, sharing of your word. Thank you, Father, for Isaiah 9, that even though the people were plunged into darkness because of the rejecting of your word and the Messiah, yet you chose to bless them with the great light. Father, for us who are believers in Jesus Christ, you have taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and you have put us into the kingdom of of light, the kingdom of the Son of your love. Father, we are so blessed that Jesus is not only our Savior, but he is the eternal King. He is the counseling wonder. He, there's nothing he cannot do. He's the everlasting provider and lover and caregiver of eternity, of all the ages, and he is the Prince of Peace. Wow, what a Savior. We just love everything about him. I can't wait to see him, Father. Thank you for this church. Bless our business as we attend to both electing uh, people to lead and serve and dealing with Um, the stewardship of our finances. You are such a great God. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.